How was Will just telling me I'm preaching tonight? I'm not kidding, not kidding. Well, welcome everybody. It's nice to see you. I can see some visitors here too. It's great to see you back from holiday. Also, Floridians are back. That's lovely to see you too. It's good. Uh, we're a lot of people away as well, of course. We remember them. Uh, we're here to worship God. The psalmist said, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Well, let's pray for that gladness as we stand to sing to his praise the song from the breaking of the dawn. Thank you. 
Please be seated. Let's join together in prayer. Standing on every promise of your word, we remember the promise that I will ask the Father who will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Because I live, you also will live. On that day you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he's the one who loves me. And whoever loves me will be loved by my Father. And I too will love him and show myself to him. We take you at your word and stand on that promise that you will not leave us as orphans. But as our elder brother come to us in the power of the Comforter, in the presence and person of the blessed Holy Spirit, who unites us to you and through you brings us to the Father. We're not orphans. We're adopted. And you share your inheritance with us. Thank you for that. An amazing thing. Not the natural, but the adopted children and We share all your riches. We thank you for the wealth of acceptance because you have richly forgiven us. We thank you for the wealth of enabling because you richly provide for us day by day. We just have to ask and you don't chide or reproach but you give and give and give and keep on giving. So thank you for that. And we thank you that there is a promise if we add to our faith knowledge and goodness and self-control and long-suffering and godliness and brotherly kindness and love for God that if we have these things in in abundant measure, we will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. A rich welcome to come with everything to hope for and win for. You know how we are tonight. You know the state of our faith whether it is low or non-existent or vibrant and living. You know, if we need to be rebuked, encouraged, taught, reproved, you know the state of our hearts. We cannot hide before you. Help us not to lie to ourselves or to you about what we're like, but to confess our sins, the things we haven't done, and the things we have done. And not to overstate, but to be accurate so that we can receive um, that assurance of our forgiveness. Has no one condemned you? 
Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Prepare us, Lord, through this time together of worship and study. Prepare us for our week of mission that's coming up. The workplace, the home, the shopping, the, the, the living with the neighbors, the activity that we have. Prepare us to glorify you in this next week. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we're reading through the book of Numbers, and uh, we'll come to Numbers 14, 26. And Louise, there you are. So the reading is Numbers 14, um, starting at verse 26 and reading to the end of the chapter. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. In this desert your bodies will fall. Every one of you, twenty years old or more, who, counted, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But you, your bodies will fall in this desert. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the desert. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community, which has banded together against me. They will meet their end in this desert. Here they will die. So the men Moses had sent to explore the land, who returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report about it, these men responsible for spreading the bad report about the land were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. Of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephunneh survived. When Moses reported this to all the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. Early the next morning, they went up towards the high hill country. We have sinned, they said. We will go up to the place the Lord promised. But Moses said, why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up, because the Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies, for the Amalekites and Canaanites will face you there. Because you have turned away from the Lord, he will not be with you, and you will fall by the sword. Nevertheless, in their presumption, they went up towards the high hill country though neither Moses nor the Ark of the Lord's Covenant moved from the camp. 
Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and attacked them and beat them all the way down to Hormah. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, um, notices. Um, just one notice to draw to your attention. The prayer meeting is not meeting in St. Peter's this Wednesday. It's going to meet in Charleston. I um, don't know if you can see that up there. And if you need directions to get there, speak to me or email Craig, um, 29 Craig Gowan Road. It's not difficult to find. Um, and, but uh, um, if, you're, if you want to know how to get there, I can tell you at the end of the service. That's all our notices. Um, let's join together in prayer. We do pray for all those who are away, some on mission this week, um, free church camp. We pray that you'll give them strength, just the energy to get through um, day by day. Pray that you'll give them rest and that refreshes them in the evening. And we pray that you'll be encouraging to them, that they'll have uh, reports of people whose lives are being changed. And we pray for the joy of people coming from darkness into light, from unbelief into belief, from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of your Son and of our God. Heavenly Father, we want to hear about young lives changed, and this would be so encouraging for us as well as for those of us who are there. Think of the SU camps uh, taking place throughout the summer, and what a blessing they have been um, to the church here in Scotland and, and beyond. We think of the Keswick Convention taking place as well, and some of our folks away at that, and uh, pray for the pouring out of your Holy Spirit upon the Bible talks and the main talks and the um, coming together of friends, sometimes an annual event. We pray for blessing on that. And we pray for ourselves here that you will help us not to um, coast in our obedience because it's summertime, but to be fervent in serving you with our, in our spirit. Um, as Paul says, on fire or boiling for the Lord. Help us not to be tepid or uh, cold, but as we see his goodness, so let we serve him in zeal. We pray for those in our midst who are anxious about their health. We've had bad news from our fellowship, and you know all about it. You know the anxieties and worries and the burdens that we share with them, and we lay them before you and ask for healing, for an understanding of what this event means to them from you, for strength to endure, for skill and wisdom from all those who will treat and give advice and help. Hear our prayers, Heavenly Father. And we pray for the preaching of your word here 
And Sunday by Sunday, we think of all the changes that have been taking place. And thank you so much that we have such resource in our midst, so many um, gifted and willing preachers. Thank you for Harry stepping in. And we remember Alistair and the grief of losing a second mother, as it were, his dear beloved aunt. Thank you that she's in glory with you now, and that's a comfort. But we pray that you will look after that family and minister to them uh, in the funeral this week that's coming up. I think of Hugh and his uh, not being here because he's not well, and he should be leading here and, um, tonight and this morning and, and pray for restoration for him and a sense of of you speaking to him in a new and, and encouraging way. Let that be so, Heavenly Father. We pray that you will give us receptive hearts to receive the word that is sown into our hearts this evening. We pray that you will keep us from being stony soil that uh, has no no root for the the seed has no root able to to grow up in that soil or hard hard clay that the seed just bounces off or even good soil that's full of weeds help us to be good soil that accepts the word with joy and produces a fruit from it 10 times even a hundred times to your glory to our good All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, we're going to uh, sing together uh, unaccompanied Psalm 20 to the tune St. Denio. And as we're singing, your offerings will be received. Thank you, Stephen. May the Lord answer you when you cry in distress. May Jacob's rock keep you, whose name you confess. May God send assistance from his holy place and grant you from Zion support.
Okay, um, Chris and Heather were, have just returned back. Where are you, Chris? He's not wearing his hat. I can't see him. Chris is going to give us a report um, of their mission out in Burundi. Um, it's been a real joy to have so many people praying for us. I can uh, truly say that we felt more prayed for than any other time, and it was probably the most challenging uh, mission we've ever done in terms of hard work, difficult situations to manage, um, and people problems that we had. But the presence of the Lord and the uh, impact that we saw God have on the community was absolutely tremendous. I mean, really tremendous. So I'll try and give you some understanding of that. Um, This is where we were working. This very sadly, the background is that um, the United Methodist Church um, had this beautiful hospital here. Brilliant building, Harry. Absolutely fantastically solid with a grano concrete floor for those of you building uh, we'll know what that means. And uh, beautiful floors, beautiful walls, really strong. It was wrecked during the time of the genocide and it was totally looted and left empty. Oh, yes, yeah, sorry. Thank you very much. It's uh, a long way away. So, <laughs> um, so it was looted really, really, really badly and left de- derelict, except for one corner, which was the corner immediately behind where the trucks parked. That was our transport for the week so we were there. This is in a place called Cairo. And the United Methodists, it had been run by an American team. There's a wonderful hospital of, with missionaries there from the States. And um, be, great reputation and fantastic place. But they'd had to withdraw in the times of the Troubles in the early 90s, and nobody had ever been back. We were the very first people to go back to provide a medical service from outside their own community. And we were working in that little corner there, which was the only part of the building that had anything like a door or actual glass in the windows of the building. All the rest were completely taken away. I'm sorry, actually. So the background was that also the United Methodist Church had had a terrible split in previous years. And when we go... Mission International have formed this partnership with uh, a missionary group in Burundi called Rema International, Rema Ministries, sorry. And they have a ministry to not only do their own outreach projects, and they've got a very fine clinic where we've worked before, but they also liaise with other church groups to try and support them. And so when Hugh's going in September, he's going to be doing teaching for the United uh, Methodist pastors uh, when he goes in September and Rhema facilitate this and encourage good Bible teaching and m- medical mi- mission into other parts of Burundi as well, working in cooperation with existing Christian churches. Because this church had gone through such a terrible experience, God had raised up this man called John, who's the head of the Methodist Church, the United Methodist Church in Burundi. And he has a fantastic heart for the poor and a real determination to see the church moving in evangelism and moving in care for the people, the poor, in the, in the community. So he has secured from the States a $600,000 
fund to modernize this hospital again and re relaunch it, which is wonderful. So we were the first to go in before any of this had happened to try and establish some rapport with the community and develop something. And the church had been riven, so many hundreds of people had left the church um, because of this split in the church, which had just been reunited uh, a year beforehand. And this man had asked us to go and do this uh, dental project and train two of his staff. So that's where we were there. And um, uh, it was what we didn't know was that the management of the clinic had really... Uh, the clinic was in great disrepair. Not this particular bit. These two rooms were good, and a, one of their staff went in and totally cleaned it from top to bottom. He did an amazing job. Uh, but the rest of the clinic was in very poor condition where they did the other work. And um, the staff people we wanted us to, to train, one young man had only been qualified three months, and we asked that they be clean, trained for five years at least before they start doing dentistry, that they have to have at least five years nursing experience. And the other one, we discovered, although he had 20 years experience, he was not walking with the Lord. So this was the, these were the challenges we had right at the outset. And um, uh, what we do every morning, we start with a time of witness to why we're there, say what Mission International is there for, what services we provide, why they are so blessed to have us come all the way from 8,000 kilometers away to be with them, that God must love them very much indeed because he's chosen them out of all the places we could be in the world, sort of thing. And uh, so we, we describe why Mission International is there and then we share a testimony or we share um, some account from the Bible like blind Bartimaeus or the lowering of the man through the roof and we encourage people to respond. Now, these meetings had anything from 50 to 70, 80 people in. And um, every morning, somebody responded to the message of the gospel. And what was really wonderful, uh, one morning, there was about 80, it was very busy. People had come in from outside to listen. And um, we bowed our heads and I, I just said, if anybody feels they really want to serve the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Please come forward, just as you are, without a plea. Lamb of God has been shed for thee. Forty people came forward out of 80 and stood absolutely in awesome silence. It was the most amazing. We were just completely taken aback. And the Lord was meeting, there was tears dripping down people's cheeks. The Lord was meeting with people wonderfully. And many Catholics gave their lives to the Lord that day. And Methodists were being restored to... That was an exceptional day. It's usually one to seven responded. But it was an exceptionally amazing day. And the uh, Methodists came back and we saw them in the church on the Sunday morning. And they were really following after the Lord. After these simple meetings in the morning. The team, uh, so this was, this was how we started. And then uh, the training, we, we did some theory training for three, sorry, I'm doing it again, three, three days of training theory uh, in one of the rooms that became a surgery. Then we started the clinical work 
they got 13 days of clinical practice. In that time, these two students uh, extracted about 90 teeth apiece, adult teeth, proper teeth, as well as hundreds of roots. And um, the requirement for a dental student... He's laughing, there's a dentist at the back here. Uh, The requirement for dental students, by the way, is 25 in final year, believe it or not, and 25 the previous two years. So they've exceeded anything that our dental students are required to do in the space of 13 days. So the training is good. And then they do children's teeth as well separately, and they did wonderfully well. So this young man is, was the man with only three months' experience. We despaired he was ever going to do For the first week, we didn't think he was going to make it. And then all of a sudden, it changed. And he's such a good lad. And he's got a fantastic manner with children. And he's working away now. We've asked, we made some recommendations about the way they should run the thing in the future. Because we didn't trust the chief nurse, who was this chap not walking with the Lord. And we asked them, please, could they put the other guy in charge? And they'd already decided that's what they were going to do. And the head of the Methodist church, John, came up to see us. And he gave us a report of what was going on. And, uh, sorry, that's just some of the This is for some of the... Those of you who are medically interested, uh, that's the main church meeting. And... We got reports back from this John, who's the head of the Methodist Church. And he said that um, people were ringing him every day. On, they have posters advertising the, the Methodist Church. And his name, he's got a special phone with his number and his name. So anybody can ring him anytime, anywhere, from any part of the land, and talk to him about what they have on their hearts, about the way things are going. This is because of what had happened previously. People were ringing him every day and saying how wonderful it was that they were getting this free treatment and that their community was being blessed so much and that they were being taken out of pain for many, many years. People were walking and through the night and staying in that building at one o'clock in the morning because it was derelict and empty in order to be there in time for the appointments opening at 8 o'clock in the morning. 1 o'clock in the morning they were arriving from to be there in time. And um, he, he said that they were getting these reports, but the one that really blessed us was this lovely old lady who said, um, you know, I thought she was in tears with him. She, she, went, she met him when he came up and she stood under that tree that was in the first picture and she said... Um, I thought God had deserted us. We haven't had any um, clinical uh, missionaries here for so many, many years. And I remember being taught the songs of Jesus underneath that tree from these missionaries. And we haven't had them here for over 25 years or so. And she was in tears. She said, how wonderful it is to see people back serving the Lord in this way. And singing the songs of Jesus again and providing dent medical care. And it was, it was so wonderful to hear that. So this is us all together at the end, starting from your left. That's the guy that did all the cleaning and he was just astounding. He's had a titanium rod put in a leg by another 
American-run Methodist hospital about 60 kilometers away because he had such a bad crash. Then Violet, who comes from Glasgow, is a specialist cancer worker. Then we've got... I can't see from there. Uh, Oh, yeah, our driver, Peter, who was from the Rimmer team who stayed with us to be, so we always had a bodyguard so to speak, then Heather as you know and that young man in the middle red shirted, he is John, Jean-Marie, he came to know the Lord five years ago in one of these morning meetings the Rima team didn't want us to use him as our interpreter because he was, had such a bad reputation in the, in the village nearby he used to beat his wife up and she used to flee the house. He was such a terribly bad-tempered and awful man. He'd been badly beaten. And the thing that was holding in the war and had his scars all across his head and he'd had to flee for his life and he couldn't forgive the people. But in this meeting in this morning, he responded to Jesus and asked for forgiveness and forgave his enemies. And he's walked with the Lord since and He's now our interpreter, not only for clinic, but also for messages. And his understanding of the Bible has come on amazingly. So when he shares in the morning, when we have this little Bible study in the morning, he was coming out with wonderful truths from the scriptures. And he's now with us all the time, wherever we go. And this was somebody Rama thought should never be with us. And now they're thinking of employing him. Because he has changed so much. Um, and then we go around and see the two trainees, the young boy in the blue and the older man in the white coat, and there's me, and the boy on the floor is the young doctor we trained about four years ago, who is an absolute gem, and who we're going to be putting through with Mission International, through Mission International, we're going to be sponsoring him to do surgery properly. Because in this country, if you want to be a surgeon... You don't get any pay while you're training. You have to find all your own support for yourself and your family and then do the work and pay for your fees and pay for your examinations. And you don't get a penny from the government unless you choose to join the political party and he refuses on principle. So anybody who wants to help support him, you can do in the future. So that was it, blessings. It was just tremendous. And these two guys can really do the work. We're concerned still about the old, older bloke because he has not really followed the Lord, but he's very good clinically, I've got to say. But the young fella is just tremendous, and he's been contacting us every day since we left. So that was it, and thank you so much for your prayers. It was a joy and a privilege to be there and to work with these folk and see the Lord at work through a simple act of kindness the word is spread out all over the community and people were coming from 15 and 20 kilometers, as I said, through the night to be there, one o'clock in the morning. Right, um, before Harry comes up and uh, leads us and Nehemiah 3 preaches to us, we're going to sing um, the song, By Faith We See the Hand of God. Let's stand.
Turn with me, please, to Nehemiah chapter 3. If you're using one of the church Bibles, I I think you'll find that on page uh, 486. Uh, Just before reading one or two words of uh, introduction, we have seen uh, Nehemiah's response after having uh, received news from those returning from Jerusalem to the effect that the people of God 
were experiencing uh, considerable uh, pressure, opposition, uh, and great shame. God's name uh, was dishonored, his city uh, still in ruins and getting worse, it would appear, by the day. And Nehemiah's response to that was passionate, uh, it was prayerful, and as a response to his prayer, uh, God in his providence provided a way for him uh, to return to that city with all of the provisions required to rebuild uh, the walls. Uh, on his arrival, Nehemiah set about uh, preparing uh, for that work. He published his plan, and uh, we were amazed to see that to a man, the city responded by saying, let's rise up and build, let's go for it. Uh, and as soon as that decision was made, immediately there was notification from the opposition, it's not going to be easy. We are going to do all that we can to disrupt the work. Uh, Sanballat and Tobias uh, mainly at that juncture. Uh, so now we move in to uh, chapter 3 of Nehemiah. Eliashib the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachar, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah, they laid the beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the, hun the son of Hakoz, repaired the Nick section. Next to him, Meshullam, son of Berechiah, the son of Mesh Ezabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Bana, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Now, you may or may not be relieved to know that it's not my intention to read uh, the whole chapter, uh, but we will uh, be dipping into it, so please keep uh, that place uh, open. Uh, working through the book of Nehemiah, there is a very real temptation, I think, to engage in what might be described as literary long jumping. We follow all of the exciting drama, chapters 1 and 2, until we reach chapter 3, uh, which reads, let's face it, a bit like a building site worksheet and then we jump right over and into chapter 4. Uh, preparing for this evening, uh, I consulted a book by a well-known Christian writer who did exactly that. He had a lot to say about chapter 1 and chapter 2, and then you move into chapter 4. Uh, and you say, what about chapter 3? Not even a footnote. 
not even an appendix. It's completely missing. But the Bible does say, does it not, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And I want to suggest to you this evening that chapter 3 is of supreme importance. As we engage with the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls, invaluable lessons can be learned and applied to the contemporary mission of the church. Nehemiah was responsible for a construction project on a monumental scale, and its early completion was of paramount importance. Why? Well, as we saw in the previous chapter, the enemy threat had been raised to DEFCOM 2. Sanballat and Tobias were ready to uh, bring all the power of the opposition out to face them. Now, Nehemiah didn't have the luxury of calling in DIY SOS with an army of qualified tradesmen who always complete the work in record time. Uh, Michael Griffiths writes as follows, The test of good leadership is not its ability to do the organizing work, important as that is, so much as the ability to mobilize every available person and get them into action. And Nehemiah, under God, does precisely that. And this evening I want us to look at two things. Uh, First of all, the composition of the workforce that we find in chapter 3, and secondly, the strategic development of the work, how the walls were raised. The first of these, composition of the workforce. First and of greatest importance, these workmen saw themselves as a vital part of a great community project, a project of enormous consequence. Their shared vision and fixed purpose transcended their lack of paper qualifications and building experience. When they stepped on the site, they knew they were there to build for God's glory. And their resolve and determination would outstrip all of the natural disadvantages facing them. Notice, everyone, everyone was involved. Unlike many church congregations, where 20% of the people do 80% of the work, often the advance of God's work falters... It falters not because of a lack of vision, but because of a lack of willing workers. None of these builders were there for the ride. There were no spectators. There were no pew fillers. 
unlike a football match where 50,000 people badly in need of exercise sit back and watch 22 people run themselves into the ground. It wasn't like that. We often see what needs to be done, but we can't agree as to who should do it. Yes, this needs to be done, but who should do it? No one registered an excuse for their non-involvement. I love verse 12. Not only was Shalom at work, but his daughters were there with him. Uh, And they're not moaning, you'll notice. They're not saying, we can't help. We've just had a manicure. Look. They are all involved. They had a unity of purpose. That's a great thing to have at congregational level. A unity of purpose. God grant us that, not just during the vacancy, but in the years that lie ahead. Secondly, this unity existed despite their diversity. We are told that a measure of unity can be achieved if people come from the same social background, possess similar skill sets, maintain similar interests. But look at the makeup of this uh, building crew. Verse 8, there were goldsmiths. What did they know about concrete mix? There were goldsmiths, uh, perfumers or pharmacists. Uh, There's a district commissioner, several in fact. And so the list goes on. What a variety. Uh, But notice... uh, Read through the whole chapter, please, at your leisure later on, and you will discover that there's not a single stonemason, nor is there a carpenter in this list. Uh, All of these people, despite lack of qualification, roll up their sleeves and they get mucked in. Uh, Because, you see, the thing that bound them together was far greater than the differences that could cause their fragmentation. That needs repeating. The thing that bound them together was far greater than anything that could cause their fragmentation. One of the unique characteristics of the church, I believe, is its ability to absorb and operate with a broad spectrum of individuals. And there's a broad spectrum here this evening, is there not? Not simply putting up with one another's differences, but working side by side with them in unity of purpose. I wonder if you've heard of uh, Schopenhauer's Syndrome. Uh, It's actually often called the porcupine syndrome syndrome. He said, people are like a pack of porcupines on a freezing winter night. The sub-zero temperatures force them together for warmth. But as soon as they come close together and touch each other, jabbing and hurting one another, they separate again. And this is a repeating pattern, in, out, in, out. You think you're doing the hokey-cokey, but you're in and out and in and out. And that's, as I say, a, a repeating pattern. 
Uh, is that, I wonder, the experience of some as far as Christian fellowship is concerned. I wonder if you're familiar with the jingle, to dwell above with saints we love, that will be grace and glory. To live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. Well then, this porcupine syndrome is not the inevitable pattern of Christian fellowship, as this chapter bears out and as John Owen illustrates. And he writes as follows, The church is like a bundle of sticks, some long, some short, some straight, some bent, some fat, some thin. We have different interests, personalities, backgrounds, spheres of life. Uh, What uh, do you do? If you want to carry such a bundle of sticks of different shapes and sizes, oh, you bind them together in a bundle. One piece of rope makes the task straightforward. So too in the church of Christ, there is only one thing that will hold together such diverse groupings of people. And then he quotes Colossians three fourteen: Put on love which binds all together in perfect unity. Scripture doesn't encourage us to manufacture unity. We can't do that. But to preserve, to maintain, to make use of the unity that has been already created for us in Christ Jesus. Thirdly, I want you to notice that the builders listed here were geographically disparate. Some of them came from Jericho, verse 2, some from Tekoa, verse 5, some from Gibeon and Mizpah, verse 7, and so on. Now, you can understand why local residents would want to build up their walls. They had a vested interest. But but what's the deal here with these outsiders? They weren't Jerusalem council taxpayers. And yet, there they were. Jerusalem was their worship center. And that was enough. That was enough to secure their involvement. Uh, You'll notice that at St. Peter's we don't have a sign uh, on the wall outside that reads, only Gallic-speaking Presbyterians from Lewis are allowed to build the kingdom of God in this place. We're not a closed shop, excluding uh, even those that come from south of the border are warmly welcomed. The criterion, the criterion for building in this place is a genuine concern for God's glory. Fourthly, consider, if you will, the example that's given by the leadership in verse 1. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests began work on the sheep gate. People take their cue from the leadership, and with good reason. It has been said that churches die from the top down. 
churches die from the top down. Well, here's a spiritual leader who's not only prepared to get his hands dirty, he recognizes that he is in a position to raise the morale of the troops. He didn't say, notice, I'll pray for you fellows as you get on with the building work. I want you to know I'm going to be with you in spirit. Get on with it. He didn't bully others into participation. Was it Bernard Shaw who wrote, Any fool can lead with a stick in his hand. The high priest, he heads the queue. He's there first. don't know if he was there at one o'clock in the morning, but he was there first at the very beginning of the queue. Knowing the power of example is a great motivator. It brings out the best in others. You may remember that in preparing his disciples for kingdom building, Jesus was aware of the petty rivalry and the desire for prominence amongst his disciples. And what did he do? He took a basin of water after supper and he began to wash his disciples' feet. He was teaching that the future leaders of the church would and should lead through sacrificial service. That's the way. And how did Jesus comment on what had really been an electrifying performance? Can you imagine? Here is the Lord of glory washing our feet. How did he comment on this electrifying? fine performance of humility. He says in John 13, verse 15, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. The power of example, it is a powerful motivator. A final observation worthy of note, I think, is that as we read through uh, this list of names, there is one name that's noticeable by its absence. Okay, you say, which one? Nehemiah, master of works, on whose shoulders the organizational load of this project lay, fails to mention his own name. He's hesitant to say, oh, better write Nehemiah. He was responsible for all the plan. He doesn't do that. He's reluctant to say, see what I've done. He knew that this construction was God's work, and to God alone belonged the glory. Contrast that, if you will, that self-effacing attitude with that of Nebuchadnezzar, Uh, Many years earlier, we read in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 30, that is, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was uh, parading uh, his walls. He looked out over his city, and he says, my, what a great job I've done. Oh, this, this is all for my glory. Good old Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Is the name plate up yet? And we read that immediately he said that, God struck that king down. And he 
for the next several years lived as a beast in the fields. Uh, his pride exalted him, see my glory. And God says, not a bit of it. You will learn humility. Well, Nehemiah was a, a humble master of works. But the second thing we want to notice this evening is the strategic development of the work. Nehemiah had a very clear plan in mind concerning what had to be done and how to realize that objective. First, a project of this magnitude required assigned tasks. And Nehemiah drew up a list of 40 or so groups of builders, each given the responsibility for a little section or a bigger section of the wall. The groups differed in size and composition. Some were assigned a strip of wall uh, just across from their family dwelling. How convenient going home for lunchtime. Not far to go. Others... Others were not so fortunate. Uh, look at Hanan's group in verse 13. He was given a thousand cubits of wall to repair. Now, uh, I found myself asking, what's a thousand cubits? And I, I got a Google map out and I did the conversion and measured it. So you go out of the church door here, you walk all the way down St. Peter's Street, turn left onto Perth Road, you walk all of the way along past the library. That's a thousand cubits. It's enormous. It's the blue section in the bottom right-hand uh, section of the map up there. A thousand cubits. Uh, Nehemiah must have thought, these people are the heavy lifters. <laughs> Give that section uh, to them. But the ruler... Uh, Melchijah was assigned the least desirable job of all, verse 14. He got the dung gate where animal dung was regularly carted out. Now, he doesn't attempt to use his influence or position to secure an easier job. He didn't say, do you know who I am? I, I deserve something better than this. He was one of many qualified people wielding picks and shovels, clearing rubbish, pushing wheelbarrows loaded with masonry, all without murmur. Tell them what to do and they would do it. Such people are invaluable in congregational life. All except, you'll notice verse 5, all except the nobles of Tekoa, they would not put their shoulders to work under their supervisors. Was the building work too menial for them? Were they too superior to be ordinary workers? Were they unwilling because they weren't in charge? And they were used to giving directions. But suddenly... They found themselves being told what to do by some lowly skilled tradesman supervising that part of the construction. And they were unhappy with their assignment. They downed tools. Uh, 
that problem has been around the church for many years. It was true of the church in Corinth, was it not? Paul had to address it in 1 Corinthians 12, 14 following, uh, where he uses the analogy of the church being a body, each part having a distinctive role to play. If one part contracted out of its assigned role, then the whole body was going to suffer. I don't want to be a foot. Who wants to be a foot? I want a more prominent role. And Paul's argument is very simple. In God's work, we all have a unique, a significant part to play. No matter what it is, it's important to God. And what we consider to be of little importance is vital And only by accepting what God has called us to do will we experience true happiness, peace, and wholeness. Notice, too, the immediate need in Jerusalem took priority over the workers' own gifts and skill sets, which in normal times could well have been used to good effect. Everybody needs a perfumer or a chemist. We ought to be working where the need is, and not just where we consider our preference and abilities should lead us. When William Still, minister in Aberdeen, was struggling uh, with a heavy workload, a young man came up to him and offered to help. And William still responded, uh, well, I'm, I'm so glad my, my, my grass badly needs cut. Could you do that for me? And the youngster replied, well, that's not the help I had in mind. Uh, I'm a preacher. I'll preach for you. He didn't want an assigned task. Cutting the grass was uh, beneath him. But it was work, nevertheless, that needed doing. I wonder if we pass by the immediate needs identified to us here in St. Peter's because we don't think they're a good fit for our gifts, our skill sets. I, I really don't have the gift of chair stacking. I don't have the, the gift of dishwashing. I don't have the gift of church cleaning. It's not my gift. Let others involve themselves. Secondly, notice the building method that Nehemiah employed required interdependence rather than independence. Forty groups of builders were assigned to fill in gaps in the walls which, which were essentially uh, parts of an interlocking structure. Think about it. Building a wall in 40 different places at the same time. The real difficulty comes when your bit of the wall comes up next to your neighbor's. It's got to interlock. You've got to get your levels right. Otherwise, you're just concerned with your portion of the wall without reference to the others. There is the need for interdependence. Uh, What's happening on either side of me? The whole, 
And again, it's important, I think, for us to grasp this. The whole was greater than their individual part. The great danger of the independent mindset is that it creates tunnel vision and takes us off plan. And so, for example, Seth says to his family, I think we should actually build a patio out from the wall. And his wife says, great idea. Can we have an infinity pool at the end of that? And the teenage kids say, Dad, you know, a spiral staircase down to the the vineyard below would be great because grapes are ace. Uh, And after all, after all, won't people come here? Great view of Mount Hebron. They'll come and they'll float in the pool. There's money in that. Let's go for it. This thinking... Uh, and I know I say that tongue-in-cheek, but this thinking reveals an independent rather than an interdependent mindset. Instead of asking, how does my bit of the wall relate to my neighbors, personal desire is promoted at the expense of God's building project. Ask for a moment, Is what I'm doing about what I call my ministry. This is my ministry. Or do we look around and ask, is this part of our ministry? Is this for my good? Or is this for the greater good? When Paul encourages the Philippians in 1 and 27 to contend as one man for the faith of the gospel, his analogy is drawn from Roman military strategy, which focused on interdependence rather than independence. Shields up, stand side by side, cover one another's back. Working for the common good clashes with selfish self-centeredness. Don't you find it so refreshing to see the, the spontaneous response of that selflessness in verse 27 among the Tekoites? Now, they've already completed their section of the wall. Verse 5 tells us that's their allotted section. They've finished that. And then they come back to Nehemiah and say, what's next? They're taking on a second section. Some think they wanted to make up for the unwillingness of their leaders to participate in the work, uh, perhaps. But there was certainly none of this pettiness among them that says, well, we've done our part of the work, actually. Let others get on and do what is needed. They saw the need, rose to meet it, with second-mile believers of this category or caliber. And this kind of commitment to hard work, God's purposes will surely always advance. There is more that could be said, but time is uh, running out. Uh, We began this evening by describing chapter 3 as a building site worksheet. But of course, it's much more than that. It's a role of honor. 
recording the names of those who had caught the vision of God's work and taken the responsibility for the hard, back-breaking labor that uh, was associated with it. In Pilgrim's Progress, we find Christian arriving at Interpreter's House, where he is shown many things, including a palace with figures dressed in gold parading the parapet. And a number of pilgrims down below clearly wanted to enter the palace gates. But there's a group of well-armed, vicious-looking men guarding the door. And near the door was seated a man at a desk, ready to record the names of those who were determined to enter. But we read that this group of pilgrims drew back. With the exception of one man, uh, Bunyan tells us he was of stout countenance. Don't you love Bunyan's expression? He was of stout countenance. And he approached the desk and said, Sir, set down my name. And he rushed the door and he battled through the opposition. And despite the wounds and card, he made it into the palace. And Bunyan's point is clear. Kingdom work is not advanced without great hardship. We enter the kingdom through much tribulation. Sore backs and blisters are the least of it. Now, our name may never appear in a copy of who's who, but there is a greater role of honor than that. It contains the names of those who are God's kingdom builders. I wonder are we in the face of challenge and hardship and conflict and opposition prepared to approach the desk and say, sir, set down my name. Yet I know it's hard. I, I, I see the difficulties are great. I recognize the opposition and the pressure. Set down my name. I want to be part of God's building team. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we bless you for the privilege of not only being drawn to yourself, but of being brought together, part of your building project. Many of us would consider ourselves ill-equipped and certainly not qualified to do much of the work that requires to be done. And yet, we want to find within our hearts a desire for that commitment and hard work that brings us to the place where we do want our names set down, not for the approval of men, not to gain the praise of men, but in order to bring pleasure to your heart. Help us 
then this evening to set down our name for this work we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Our last item of praise is uh, our old hymn, Christ Has Made the Sure Foundation. It goes back a few years, but it's a wonderful hymn to stand and sing together to finish.
May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.